Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume in, in September of 2021 uh, here in our home city of New York. But that goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to bring you to the latest episode of our Salt Talks Digital Assets or Crypto series uh, with Robert Breedlove. Uh, if you're in the space, you likely know Robert. He has a fantastic podcast called What is Money? Something we'll talk about today. Uh, but he's a freedom maximalist. He's an ex-hedge fund manager. And he's a philosopher in the Bitcoin space. And he's also smarter than the rest of us because he lives in beautiful Hawaii where he gets uh, time to spend time in nature uh, and think about uh, the future of Bitcoin as well as plenty of other important topics as well. But to him, Bitcoin is fundamentally a humanitarian movement exposing the greatest con in human history, central banking. Uh, by learning about the connection between honest money, entrepreneurship and civilization, we are renewing hope for the future of humanity in Robert's eyes. And to this end, Robert's mission is to restore freedom, truth, and virtue in our world by tenaciously asking the question, what is money? Again, the name of his fantastic podcast. We would highly recommend you go out and listen to every episode. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm with over $500 million of exposure to Bitcoin. So I know he and Robert see eye to eye uh, on a lot of things related to Bitcoin. Uh, but without stealing any more of that thunder, I'm going to turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Well, John, thank you. And since I'm not the millennial here, I'm the only one dressed. So I'm going to loosen my tie. So this way we can get into it a little bit. And uh, Mr. Robert, uh, obviously you're a brilliant guy. I, I read your stuff. I follow your podcast. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you see something. But tell us when you started seeing something. So where was the eureka moment for you where you said, okay, I've got to own this. I've got to own it in size. And then I've got to be a maximalist or close to being a maximalist about it. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I think the eureka moment was more of a process. Um, it, you know, didn't exactly hit me quite like a bolt of lightning. But I had this foundation before Bitcoin and that in about, I think it was 2005, I'd been going down the central banking rabbit hole. Um, and I got a lot of insight from G. Edward Griffin's The Creature from Jekyll Island, which is a book that discusses the founding of the Federal Reserve, um, which is the latest and dominant implementation of central banking in the world. So but I, as you, I don't, I don't want to interrupt you, but we have a lot of young listeners. So The Creature sure from Jekyll Island... Basically, Jekyll Island is off the coast of Georgia. That's right. Uh, in in the uh, at the 1910, 11, 12, in that time frame, they were organizing which would ultimately be the third nationalized banking system, if you will, central bank. That's right. The other two failed. That's they're right. They're off the coast of Jekyll Island, and they're conspiring to put this together. And it's a little bit of a nefarious story. So tell us about the nefarious nature of that story. And again, the book is called The Creature from Jekyll Island. 
Yeah, that's right. I think the, um, what you alluded to there is that there were two failed implementations of central bank banking in the U.S. Um, and actually, my, my favorite Tennessean, former president, Andrew Jackson, I think he was notorious for, for keeping uh, one of the charters expired. And there's also a story. I'm not sure if it's apocryphal or not of him punching a central banker in the face at one of these conventions. Yeah. So in H.W. Um, uh, Brands's book on Andrew Jackson, he was a combative, spirited person. Obviously, he was populist. Yeah. Uh, he didn't like central banking because he thought that there was a ripoff scheme in central banking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he did punch one of the central bankers in the face. So you got the story correct. <laughs> uh, and he he allowed that banking charter to expire. Yes. Uh, and it was based on his common sense assertion that the central bank was going to be predisposed to corrupting the money. That's right. So, but but after the panic of 1907, there was a huge liquidity crisis in the American banking system, and so a guy by the name of John Pierpont Morgan uh, mm-hmm. stepped in. He was the only bank that had the liquidity and capital, and he stepped in and liquefied the other banks. And of course, this pissed off the government because it made J.P. Morgan arguably the most powerful person in the United States, if not the world. And so they moved themselves off of the coast to Jekyll Island to build this central bank. You yes. take it from there. Go ahead, Mr. Breedlow. Yeah. What I did so far? Am I, am I doing No, right? you're, you're, I really appreciate the fine detail because I, I tend to describe things in broad strokes. So I think it adds a lot of context. Um, but to, the, to your point, it's, so the implementation of the Federal Reserve was the third attempt at a central bank in the United States. It was done in a very covert fashion. Uh, you know, these men were transported to Jekyll Island in a very secretive manner. Um, they were, you know, carrying hunting rifles. So that, that was kind of a cover story for the trip. And long short is they basically passed, you know, they developed the legislation that would become the Federal Reserve Act um, that would be passed. I think it was either on Christmas Day or the day after Christmas. Uh, in Congress. And it was basically pitched as a resolution to the banking crisis that you just mentioned. It's like, hey, we're going to implement the central bank. We won't have any more of these liquidity crises. Um, You know, like any state measure, it was pitched as a resolution to chaos, when in fact, it is a mechanism for control. So accurate to Andrew Jackson's foresight, uh, the Federal Reserve was implemented um, there's a great read too on Rothbard wrote a piece on America's great depression, which actually describes how instrumental the federal reserve was in creating the great depression, um, which is contrary to a lot of Keynesian belief that it was actually gold somehow that caused the great depression or going off of gold. So, um, it is an institution that is, the ultimate rent seeker, if you will. They just control the medium through which we all interact and interface in the commercial environment. Um, It was done in secret and it was done. uh, The the wool was pulled over an unwary public's eyes because they did not by this point understand the evils and failures of central banking that people had endured in England. A lot of the reason this country was founded as a decentralized you know, federal model was because it was intended to resist um, 
a central authority like this, like a central bank coming to power. And I think that's why um, people like Andrew Jackson were, were so resistant to it. And, you know, it's we've seen the experiment run, right? We've seen this experiment run several times before. Um, 1971, we went off the gold standard. And it's hard to find a socioeconomic metric that has not become worse in the past 50 years. You know, we're sitting here now in 2021, 50 years after uh, breaking the peg to gold. So I think that this is this is what my show and my work attempts to go deeply into, is that I think the corruption of the money and the unmooring of the money from the discipline and honesty that gold enforces on political actors and socioeconomic um, development more broadly is the reason we're seeing so much crisis in the world, cultural crisis, economic crisis, debt crisis, currency crisis. Um, you know, now it's, we're starting to see the effects of inflation. I think the next 10 to 15 years are going to be really brutal. We're already seeing labor shortages. I think you're going to see, um, you know, price controls and, and capital controls uh, coming to the fore over the next 10 years as well. So we're deep into this, the consequences of corrupt money. And I think that's why many of us in Bitcoin are so passionate about what we do, because we think it's the only viable alternative to um, have a functioning global economy. Okay, so let me test some things out on you, and I want to get your reaction to it, because I obviously uh, we're in intellectual agreement, and I think we see the world very similarly. Uh, you probably got there ahead of me. I, I'm more of a Wall Streeter, if you will, more of an institutionalist. So it took me a minute to uh, assess the landscape and get get to where you are. Uh, but I want to test some things out on you because I think we're having something happen right now that's contemporaneous and very weird. We have asset inflation and we have inflation spiking on some goods and services like oil, fuel, some consumption oriented things, food prices. But at the flip side, we're having some deflationary forces at the same time where the long bond is going back down. The two, three, five-year treasury for the United States trading at about 100 basis points. Let's just call it roughly there. There's a flatness there. Uh, Robert, in the 1970s, we had something called stagflation. Uh, and you had high unemployment, but you also had inflation at the same time. They couldn't figure it out. Mm -hmm. We have in deflation right now. I'm coining that term right here on the SALT Talk. We have cotemporaneous inflation in certain parts of the society and deflation happening at the same time. Am I right about that? And if I am right about that, why is that happening? Yeah, these are um, two of the most confusing terms in finance, I believe. I'd like to first, I realized I didn't answer your first question about the Eureka moment. So I had this broad understanding of central banking that led to my discovery of Bitcoin. And I would just add this for the audience. It's a deep intellectual journey, I think, to understand Bitcoin, right? You need to understand, answer the question, what is money? You need to understand why gold became money. Then you understand why Bitcoin is better. The eureka moment for me, I will say, is in the study of game theory, though. I think the realization that money is really just a reflection of time or a tool for trading time, that every market actor will voluntarily adopt the most inflation-resistant money, like that is what the free market will naturally select for. That's what gold was. Um, and then when you come to understand that Bitcoin 
is the only money with 0% terminal inflation. It's the self-interest of every market actor globally will zero in on Bitcoin as money. So I think that just to answer the eureka moment, I think if you can uh, compile your, your hours of studying the multiple disciplines necessary to understand Bitcoin, but you cap it off with some game theory and you realize that that functions at every level, that's individual, corporate and nation state level. To get to inflation, stagflation, deflation, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, you know, the term inflation is typically used ambiguously. People don't know if you mean consumer price inflation, which is how the government typically identifies it. Uh, clearly asset inflation, which is going to be uh, the nominal price increase in assets is another definition. And then the term that I, when I use the term inflation, I specifically refer to arbitrary increases in the fiat currency supply. So this centrally planned market manipulation that induces the first two forms of inflation, both asset and consumer price. Um, that is what I th think needs to be eradicated from the world and from our lexicon. You know, we don't even need this term inflation um, to exist because basically what it represents is uh, theft implemented directly into the money. We have sy systemic theft implemented directly into the medium, which is intended to be the trust minimized asset for commercial engagement, right? We actually have a backdoor built into it, a tech backdoor, if you will, that central banks use to siphon wealth and arbitrarily misallocate. They would say allocate, I would say misallocate capital. Um, the deflationary forces that we are facing, these are specifically price deflation, uh, typically in the consumer price realm. And this is the, the byproduct of exponentially advancing technology. Right there's your there's a reason um, the zero marginal cost distribution of Netflix allows the price to get lower, although they're actually increasing their prices, which is funny, um, probably because they're a monopoly. Um, the the ability to distribute these software um, products, right, whether it's Microsoft, Netflix, Amazon, um, with basically no cost of distribution is something that adds to the deflationary pressure of prices and, and the things being distributed. So you have this confluence of factors. We have the digital age emerging where exchange is being conducted much more frictionlessly. The cost of distribution is collapsing in many sectors. All of this would pull down prices. But then, so there's additionally, there's essentially more economic surplus being created in the private sector, but you have that converging with this force of additional fiat currency supply inflation so that the central bank is actually using monopolized money to harvest the economic surplus being created in the private sector, which is growing exponentially in the digital age. So I guess the short answer would be you're, you would expect to see wild fluctuations and distortions. Um, Energy intensive items will tend to go up in price, right? Like no matter how much we innovate, we're not going to get any better at making ribeye steak, for instance, uh, necessarily much more efficiently or more quickly. So I think that monetary inflation is just going to create a lot of confusion in the world. I tweeted out this quote from Henry Hazlitt yesterday from Economics in One Lesson, and 
just the last line of the quote was inflation tends to create a thousand illusions. So I think that's what we're going to be suffering from over the next 10 years is that it will be very difficult for market actors to make sense of pricing because of so much uh, policy intervention. Um, It will be difficult to disentangle that from supply and demand fundamentals. So very well said. I didn't want to interrupt any of that because I think it's a brilliant analysis of what's going on. So make the case for Bitcoin uh, and make the case for you're thinking about Bitcoin because you're a long-term investor. Obviously, Bitcoin has oscillated a little bit. It had, uh, I think this time last year was probably eight or 9,000. It's trading at 29,000 right now. Uh, that would be a phenomenal return to anybody except for the psychology, Robert, where people <laughs> saw it at 64,000. That's right. And of course, there are some people that bought it up there and so they're bruised by it. So tell us about the near-term, the intermediate-term, and long-term case for Bitcoin. Sure thing. So I would say the near-term, in my perspective, is that I still believe the supply and demand fundamentals of Bitcoin are what is currently driving its price cycles. So as we all know, we have a, an inflation rate having pre-programmed into Bitcoin every four years. Historically, uh, we've seen price run-ups, US dollar Bitcoin price run-ups. The peak typically occurs, I think it's 510 days average post-halving. So the general theory is that every time you constrict the new issuance of Bitcoin by 50% at the halving event, holding demand neutral or constant, that creates upward pressure on the price. Um, The market tends to get out over its skis quite a bit. There's a lot of hype, a lot of FOMO. Uh, People pile in. It does a large parabolic move, and then it has sharp corrections downward. Um, I am of the belief that that pattern still holds until proven otherwise. Now, that said, that would have a price peak occurring, I think, mid-October 2021. We'd expect to see a new all-time high which would be above the $64,000 local peak. Um, That said, we have this uh, sort of anomalous event in China where there's been massive crackdown on Bitcoin mining. And a lot of those those miners have been boxed up and shipped elsewhere. Um, The hardware itself was, the the market was soft. Let's just say there was a a kind of a, a duress liquidation of a lot of this mining equipment. So there are macro factors playing into this cycle that we haven't seen previously. Um, this could either break the pricing cycle. You know, if, if 64,000 proved to be the peak and we saw Bitcoin continue to draw down over the next 12 months, then I would have to throw out my theory of, of the, the halving cycle purely driving its price going forward. We'll have to start to account for more of these, these uh, extraneous factors. Midterm, say medium term, five to 10 year, I think Bitcoin is going to perform extremely well. Um, the simple elevator pitch I give is Bitcoin is a non-counterparty insurance policy on central banking. The more dollars or fiat they print, the more valuable it becomes. Um, clearly, we are printing money or expanding the money supply at an accelerating rate. I would expect that insurance policy to do really well over the next five to 10 years. And then longer term, um, I think it's the most important asset you can hold, frankly. It is, 
the only asset in the world that no one, no singular interest can control, manipulate, regulate, change the rules of, um, assuming you custody it properly, cannot even be confiscated. Uh, it's really an evolution in property rights. You know, the this country, again, was founded on this core natural law thesis of the right to life, liberty, and property. Uh, we've, we've replaced that third one with pursuit of happiness, which I think is a big mistake. I don't think you should pursue happiness in life. I think you should pursue responsibility, as Jordan Peterson teaches us. Um, happiness is a nice byproduct if you lead a responsible life. But that third one, property, that is the basis of civilization. If we don't have property rights that we know we can go and invest our labor into projects and creating value for others and reap the value that we create, right? Store the fruits of our labor in something secure that we can then redeem for help from others, right? From for services from others, then civilization breaks down. Then we're all just going to be out here, um, you know, it regresses you to a caveman like state. If you don't have property, how do you create civilization? It is, you know, if you read a little bit of Ayn Rand, this is the basis of civilization. There is no other um, fruitful or peaceful or cooperative action among humans without property. And inflation is a violation of private property rights. We are arbitrarily allocating wealth from the hands of some and to others. So long-term, I think Bitcoin is the solution to this dissolution of civilization through the violation of property. So you said a lot there. Uh, I, I, I'll probably steal that from you, Robert, because it's such a good line. It's a free I'm market gonna, for ideas. It's okay. Take it's no away. problem because I'm not going <laughs> to give anybody footnotes. I steal a lot of my ideas from John Dorsey, I might add as well. Uh, so I'm oh, a plagiarizer, good. but I think that it's a brilliant statement that inflation is a property theft because it's your time and your labor and the government is devaluing you're, you're using your time and your labor in exchange for fiat currency, and the, the government is devaluing the fiat currency, so it's thieving your time and your right. labor. I think it's very well said. It can't be overstated. Um, you know, Ben Franklin, obviously, uh, Jefferson wrote property. Uh, you may remember this. Uh, John Adams and Ben Franklin proofread the Declaration of Independence. And uh, it was Franklin that suggested the pursuit of happiness. This was mm. a a John Locke idea. Remember, he was another philosopher mm -hmm. in the uh, in the Great Enlightenment. And Franklin said that if you have life and liberty and you're pursuing happiness, the property itself would take care of itself was what his point of view is. And they inserted that. So there's been a big debate over the 245 years about property and happiness. But I am in agreement with you that property is a central element for all of us because it's mm -hmm. uh, it gives us a sense of ownership in our temporal world, but also, you know, if, it, if it's something we're holding and we worked hard on, we can transfer to our children. So that brings me to another very, very big question, which is about Bitcoin and Bitcoin's ability to continue to be the apex predator uh, in the space. Is that something mm. that you're fully confident in? Do you think something like Ethereum can creep in? Is there room for other digital currencies that have fixed supplies. What's your opinion there? <clears throat> yeah. So I draw a pretty bright line 
in the crypto asset universe. And that line is between Bitcoin and all other alternative crypto assets, uh, endearingly called shit coins by many Bitcoin maximalists and others. And the analogy I use is that Bitcoin itself is more akin to the internet. It's it, The internet itself actually is a set of open source protocols. So some of them you've probably heard of, TCP IP, HTTP, HTTP um, SMTP, et cetera. It's this stack of open source protocols for moving information without asking anyone permission, basically. And they, they interlock and they interoperate in a way um, that essentially no one entity controls. And that's what the open permissionless nature of the internet is what allows it to render so much value to the world. You know, there was a time back in the mid nineties when we were struggling to get our language around the internet, you know, the information superhighway and all these other terms. And at that time, intranets were a competing force that people thought these private permissioned internets would be um, the wave of the future, that the open permissionless internet would not have as much of a place because corporations would just insert, you know, their large privately controlled intranets um, in its place. So that model clearly played out to the favor of the internet. And I don't think there's any intranets uh, hardly around today. And the, the reason is, is because an open network inherently outcompetes a closed source network. So in a closed source network, you have a smaller development team, you have boundaries and security costs and rules to develop and enforce. There's a lot of costs with protecting that private turf, if you will, that the open network does not incur. It has, you know, anyone can participate. The rules are voluntarily adopted. If you don't like the rules uh, of it, you can fork it and do your own thing. So it's, it's very open and permissionless. It does not accrue these regulatory and enforcement costs that a closed source network does. So that is, that's why the internet outcompetes intranets. And I view Bitcoin as essentially the latest layer in the internet. It is just like the, the layers of the internet um, allow us to move information without permission. We now have the Bitcoin layer that allows us to move economic value without permission. It sits right on top of the internet, internet protocol suite, um, augments it and complements it in many ways. All of the alternative crypto assets, I view more through the lens of intranet, that they've actually gone, copied and pasted Bitcoin's code, modified it, um, and they are using it to either attempt to compete directly with Bitcoin as money, which I think is a failed value proposition um, for reasons I've outlined in a lot of my writing, or they're trying to address other market niches. You know, there's 10,000 of them out there. Um, so I don't think... The flipping of Bitcoin, Bitcoin as digital gold, which is a very apt analogy once you understand the importance of gold in the world today. Um, I don't think it is being threatened by any alternative crypto asset whatsoever. I think I see Bitcoin as competitive to gold, uh, sovereign bonds, fiat currency, um, other stores of value. So, you, you know, I think it will absorb monetary premium from real estate, oil, et cetera. Alternative crypto assets I consider today as liquid venture capital subjected to little, if any, due diligence. So some of them 
may succeed in some market niches. Um, I would say that all of the value propositions that I have seen in the alternative crypto asset space remain theoretical. I haven't seen anything, you know, quote unquote, prove itself. You could marginally argue Ethereum has succeeded. Um, but again, these are really good questions because we don't even know the criteria. How do you how do you define success of an alternative crypto asset? We're not, I'm not even really sure about this. If you, so one number I like to look at is the realized cap, which is um, it's basically the cost basis for all the long-term holders of a, of a crypto asset. And the, the realized cap for Bitcoin just crossed 100 billion back in August 2019, I believe. So if we use that as our threshold metric, then really Bitcoin just became quote unquote market proven about two years ago. Uh, today, Ethereum, it's well below that now. It's probably in the 40, 30 to $40 billion realized cap range. If you use that as your threshold, if we see Ethereum trade above you know, $100 billion realized cap and hold that, then maybe you know, my argument's bust and we've seen one successful alternative crypto asset. But you know, again, these questions are very nuanced and um, it comes down to your framework for evaluation. How do you determine success in the marketplace? So no flipping, <laughs> I think would be the short answer, but there is the possibility that some of this other venture capital could succeed. Before I turn it over to John, who's got a series of questions for you, Robert, what, what are the greatest true long-term risks to Bitcoin? Yeah, the greatest known unknown, to use a Rumsfeld term, is the state response. All right, we know that Bitcoin is engineered to be an enemy of the state, effectively. It is something that demonopolizes the tool that has been most monopolized throughout the history of government. Um, I think it was Kissinger said that if a state controls the money, the food, and the energy, that they basically control the population in its entirety. Um, money is one that historically was easier to control because gold had these natural centralizing tendencies, right? There were a lot of economies of scale by centralizing the custody of gold and issuing paper redeemable for gold. So this gave governments an attack vector to control the money. Um, so I think that, I'm sorry, I may have veered from the original question. What was the original question? But just the long-term risk. Long-term risk. So the state response in what we're seeing in China today, are we entering that now they fight you phase? You know, I think Bitcoin has been somewhat disregarded up until this point as a joke or not, not quite a threat. But when it got to a trillion dollar market cap, um, it seemed like a lot of people started to pay much closer attention. That is when this latest Chinese response against miners um, and people participating in the financial ecosystem seemed to ramp up as well. So in the long run, I think states ultimately have to, they are incentivized to interact with the Bitcoin network and support it so that they can generate essentially a tax base um, from the economic activity that 
that it will usher in. But in the short run, I do think you're going to see more of these attempts uh, at governments cracking down or controlling Bitcoin. That's in the sphere of the known unknowns. The unknown unknowns, which are just pure black swan events, which by definition I can hardly talk about because if I, if I could describe them in detail, they wouldn't be black swans. I think that is the greatest threat to Bitcoin. And as someone looking to make a risk-adjusted bet on something, that's actually what you want to see. You want to have identified all of the possible risk vectors and be left with nothing but an unknown, unknown possibility um, of, of, of hurting your investment. So in that camp, I would put a you know technical flaw of some kind that we have not foreseen, some breaking in elliptic curve cryptography, um, which would break the commercial internet itself, by the way. So it's not like just Bitcoin is singularly vulnerable here. Um, you could say some broader cosmological event, I don't know, like an EMP burst or a supernova that affected things. Um, so I, I, I guess the <laughs> we know the state's going to do something about it. The alien announcement and the UFOs landing, you're okay with the that The alien one? announcement, I would think, is probably more in the bucket of the known unknowns at this point. I think the state may actually, it seems like they're kind of, warming people up to that idea that that'll be the next lockdowns we go into alien lockdowns or, or uh, global warming lockdowns. Just if I zoom way out, I see an antiquated organizational model called the nation state vying to maintain its relevance in the digital age where we just don't need, we don't need, um, the organizing influence of coercion nearly as much as we used to because we have voluntary networks like the internet and Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So that's the bit larger transition I think taking place. And um, yeah, the risk to Bitcoin for me are minimal enough relative to its upside that I do believe it is the best risk adjusted bet still in the world today. John Dorsey. I want to ask you a couple of quick questions before we go, Robert. One's about Bitcoin mining. So obviously China's uh, crypto ban has had this big uh, negative impact on hash rate. And you know whether it's causation or correlation, uh, hash rate traditionally has been correlated uh, with Bitcoin price. And we're co continuing to see uh, these downward adjustments. Obviously, uh, Bitcoin rewards have gone up commiserate with that. Do you think that China's ban and this this uh, you know, downward pressure on hash rate is a long term concern, or where do you think the trajectory of Bitcoin mining you know, geographically and and directionally is going? Yeah, I think long term it's it's a benefit actually to have so much hash rate uh, leaving China. I think the numbers were upward of seventy percent at one point. We're all within uh, just the Chinese jurisdiction, so that's that's actually. Um, reducing the risk overall in the long run short run though hash rate i believe the last i looked it's been a few months it tends to precede price a little bit there's a there's a bit of correlation there um, as far as whether hash rate and price are, are causative or correlative i actually think it's a feedback loop where you know the it's it's programmed into bitcoin essentially but once um 
as the hash rate increases, the network is essentially becoming more secure. So the, the store of value properties of Bitcoin are increased, which in theory would increase demand for its utility as a store of value. So I do think they have this mutually, uh, this reciprocal interaction. And yeah, so long-term, I think it's a boon. Short-term um, could be very depressive to price and could contribute to a breakdown in this pricing cycle. Um, which I still believe in uh, until I see otherwise. Um, and in terms of government, let's say you, the United States government comes through and decides they don't like Bitcoin. You know, Elizabeth Warren wins out, Janet Yellen um, and, and the Federal Reserve and all the other financial regulators got together on Monday. We're talking about the stablecoin market, but generally, uh, you know, people in the Biden administration don't love Bitcoin. If they were to come out and say, you know what, we're going to either tax it very punitively uh, or ban it in some shape or form. You know, do you think Bitcoin survives and in what form does it survive? Yeah, punitive taxation would definitely contribute to the incentive to hold long-term. So I think that would be positive for um, you know creating pressure on existing holders to continue to hold, but it would also uh, likely delay further institutional adoption or um, you know, other larger capital pools coming into the space. I think if there was a hard crackdown in the United States, um, you're again, every time one jurisdiction presses down as China's doing now, they're creating incentives for other jurisdictions to, you know, both tolerate and accept mining and build out additional financial services infrastructure into Bitcoin. So, and you could say that you're seeing some of that in like the likes of El Salvador, where they've said enough of this um, and have decided to, to make it a, a legal tender. So long run, I think Bitcoin is going to continue to do its thing in the free market. We're basically seeing Gresham's law play out, you know, again, initially at an individual level, and then that game theory percolates itself up through the corporate and ultimately nation state, central bank, sovereign wealth fund level. Um, but there's going to be, they're going to fight back. They're going to press back as well. So that might be what we're starting to see. Uh, I forget what is the Gandhi progression where it's like, first they laugh at you, then they something, then they fight you, then you win. We might be going into that fight you stage. That might be what the beginning of the, this is. So, but then the other, the other thing about the U S at least today is we still have this decentralized model. So we have you know, people like Greg Abbott in Texas that are vying to get hash rate into Texas. There's a lot of surplus energy production there, um, which means that energy producers are basically leaving money on the table. And I think as this realization dawns on them that they can just monetize a lot of this uh, currently curtailed energy production, that you're going to see the market um, continue to diffuse and enhance the Bitcoin hash rate globally. All right, Robert. Well, uh, we're going to leave it there. I wish we had three hours to do sort of long form conversations the way you do on your <laughs> What is Money podcast. But uh, we, we try to keep these uh, at about 40, 45 minutes. But uh, this has been fantastic. We hope to have you on again soon to pick up the conversation, you know, uh, maybe, maybe a year or so down the line. But uh, sure keep, keep doing what you're doing. We love your podcast. What is moneypodcast.com. You can find Robert's uh, fantastic work there. Again, we highly recommend it. Anthony, you have a final word for Robert before we let him oh, go? Listen, I, I think that uh, I applaud you for your vision, Robert, and uh, 
I want to stay close and follow what you're doing because I know that you're seeing around the corner with those laser eyes that you have on Twitter. <laughs> Put the laser yeah. eyes on as well. It's not coming as quickly as you and I both thought, but I do think what you're saying about this trend and the phenomena of having permanency of capital in things like Bitcoin is something that I think is we're, we're, we're moving towards. That standard is something that's coming. Yeah, agreed. It's it's gradually then suddenly, right? Um, so I, I hope to continue to establish some vision for us to work towards because a lot of people are struggling in the current structure um, at every level. So I hope to um, at least paint a picture of where we could be versus where we are today. Well, we appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Robert Breedlove. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website on demand at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference. But we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.